Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast with myself, Wild 2.0, and Brandon. Brilliant. So, in today's episode, we're going to start off by talking about our personal experiences with Java, the programming language. We're both going to give our um, personal experiences with it because I always hear people saying, ah, oh, they hate Java. And I'm sure, you know, we've heard, I've heard Brandon say it a couple of times on the podcast. And, you know, we just wanted to deep dive into, you know, why and sort of, um, you know, how we overcame our issues with Java. And then after that, in our Tech in Africa segment, we're going to talk about Ethiopia's hopes to become a African startup hub however there is one thing that's stopping ethiopia from doing this and if you want to find out what that one thing is then tune in to our tech in africa segment all right let's get the podcast kicked off so brandon let's start you know i always hear people talk about man i hate java i've heard you say a couple of times whilst we were doing java and uni and you know i just wanted to ask you when was and hopefully this discussion helps people who are currently learning Java or a programming language to sort of like see how they could um, overcome the problems they have with programming or any language they're learning. And hopefully it just helps in general, really, in how we overcame and how you can overcome too. Brandon, when was you introduced to Java? Yeah, I was introduced to Java when I was 19. Okay. Um, yeah, basically when I started uni on computer science, the only programming language before then I, that I knew was uh, Visual Basics. Okay. Yeah. Then, you know, this is a huge question I'm sure everyone is waiting for me to ask is, so why do you hate Java then? When, where did this hate come from? Uh, because BlueJ is annoying and <laughs> that bald man that was teaching us, was it Java Foundation? What was the name of that module? <laughs> oh, you're talking about, yeah, Java Foundations, yeah. Yeah um wasn't a very patient human being i don't know how you rush through a whole module in a week but i guess that's uni life forgetting people learn slower than others um <laughs> but yeah no it was it was just a thing of because it was it was new in uni you're you're meant to learn very fast and also i'm more of a visual person yeah. i think that's why i enjoy web more because when, when when you call the line in web development and you do you do your HTML tag, you do your body, your body, you do the head, you know, and then you do title. Once you press enter, you see the title, right? Mm. You do your paragraph tag, you put your paragraph, you yeah. click, you see the paragraph. In Java, you create your object, <laughs> <laughs> then you write the method. Is it the method? Then you write like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, you write this to God knows you have to write a whole bunch of lines of code with Java. Yeah, yeah. before you can see any response. And me being a visual learner, that was one of the things that put me off. I was like, I'm writing all these things, and I miss a semicolon, and that's the end of the world. It's <laughs> a good that, point. That with just the fact that everything was moving at a fast pace, mm. you know, it just became frustrating, and that was where the you know, the lack of love or interest that had come in, coming in. That's interesting you say, because I faced the, <laughs> the terror that you faced with um, Java as well. And I can remember vivid memory was a coursework I had due in like in two days. And I remember staying up for six hours and then eventually at 4 a.m. I, I figured out what my problem was. It was a semicolon. 
And that's why my code was not compiling. And I was just, I was so angry. I was like, are you kidding me? And it happened again. And this time was because I didn't name um, one of my methods with a capital D rather than a, um, I gave my, one of my methods a small D rather than a capital D. And I was just like, this is absolutely crazy. And what made it worse was that we wasn't using a compiler such as, you know, um, the, the ones we have now, such as, uh, which ones do we have? We got stuff like IntelliJ and we had, uh, what's the other one that everyone uses? Uh, Eclipse. Eclipse, yeah. Eclipse. We wasn't using that at that time because this was first day. They were making us use Blue as you said, so I can definitely resonate with, uh, with what you're saying. Yeah. My next question then is, what did you do to overcome your struggles with Java? Was there any steps you took to ensure that, you know, you you understood what was happening or you just, you know, basically passed the module? I think first year was more of a case of trying to get through it and understand the logic of it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I was, I was even getting an extra tutorial from a classmate and then when other people find out, they all started rushing to the lab <laughs> to get extra tutorials. And I'm thinking, wait, I thought all of you are fine. Yeah. All of you come in here acting, oh, you know, we get it, we get it. And then you find out I'm getting help. Everybody's <laughs> like, oh my God, help me too. And I'm like, hold on. Yeah. I thought you were all like, you know, doing, doing, doing better off. Yeah. But yeah, it, I think at first I, was, I lost interest in it. It was just a case of passing the module. But when I got to like second year, it was, you cannot just like scrape through anymore. Mm. So you did have to understand it. You did have to have some understanding of it. Mm. Um, and also, as well, when, when we started learning um, programming language concepts and we started doing things like C, Haskell, Python, uh, Python yeah. you started realizing, okay, there were some benefits to learning Java. But in first year, it was really um, bulky on YouTube and mm-hmm. just sit down and try and get it done as much as you can. But I think what my case was just not having that background beforehand. Mm-hmm. Because everyone came in with some level of program. Fantastic. I didn't have any of that. Now, obviously, Visual Basics, we were dragging buttons. It wasn't yeah. you go out. Um, GUI. Yeah. yeah. So it's just you drag a button and then you write a little math equation behind it. Mm. That to me was not program. They were telling us that you learned object oriented <laughs> programming. I was like, no, I dragged some buttons. <laughs> That's and I liked it because I could see what I was doing. Right. Yeah. 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 Get a GUI with it and all that type of stuff. And we're coming to uni, there is no, you, you know, front end graphic user interfaces. Oh, okay. So, um, no, that's interesting. And just to pull some important things out of the stuff you've said, one of the things you said you did was, you know, you received uh, basically tutoring from another member in the class. And this is makes sense as you see later on. And also, you also said that. You know, you found Java difficult because you didn't come in with prior experience, like other students did, who may have done it at A level. And this is very interesting, a particular point in, in this podcast, because when I tell my experience, that was very similar to mine as well. And the last thing, you know, I'll pull from what you said was that you basically used resources such as, uh, as well as the tutoring, you used Bucky, the YouTuber, right? New Boston, the org. Yeah. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So those are the main two then. Yeah, for, for me, those, those were the main two. Because I, I need someone in person to teach me, like something like Java or programming. Yeah. I need someone to show me how it's done and just tell me on a board if statement, this, this, you know, for loop. Like show me with, an, with a practical example, I understand the concept and then I can take it on from there. 
Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense. You know, everyone learns differently. If you could learn Java again as a beginner, what would you do differently? I would just take my time. I think in, in uni, it was a case of you needed to be done now, you know, with the pressure of wanting, with the pressure of um, having to submit maybe different assignments or coursework and things like that. So it it took away the the joy of the learning process, I would say, you know. So now it will be a case when I took my time more and probably instead of just learning, because when we came in, it was okay. This is a this is a if statement and a for loop. So go to the lab, practice if statement and for loop. Okay, this is a methods. Go to the lab and create a method. It wasn't a case of oh, here's a project. If we did this, this is what will happen. This is why you're doing this. You know, so maybe use yeah. a different um, learning technique than just, that's what like Code Academy does well when they are yeah. giving you tutorials. It's like, oh, we're going to create this, but for us to create this, we need this. So you start yeah. understanding why those different parts are needed to create, you know, what, what you want to create. So absolutely, absolutely. I definitely, um, I relate with what you're saying. I've said it in previous podcasts where I said that. You know, my my journey of learning programming was, I, quite, I find it quite tough just based on the fact that they would show us if statements and while loops and for loops and all these exciting stuff. But I couldn't connect the dots as to what I could do with them. You know, they'll just give us examples and say, this is, this is it. And this is how it could be done in a cooking scenario. But I wanted to know, like, you know, practically, like, what could we do to do with it rather than just sending off to, us to the lab to read instructions and expect everyone to understand those same instructions. But yeah, I totally um, agree with you. So before you came to uni, did you have any prior yeah. experience programming in particular? No, no. And to be honest, in terms of programming, I did not have any prior experience, which is why I resonated with you. And in fact, I remember the the lecturer in one of our first um, programming lessons with Java, the same you know, Dr. Beaumont, the same guy you're talking about, he said, um, you know, put your hands up. How many of you guys have never programmed before? And, you know, programming is, is your first time. And so I am basically two other students put hands up because me and those sort of students, we came from an ICT background. And I remember him saying good. And in my head, I was thinking, why is he saying good? He said, because most people get complacent. Those people who didn't put their hands up, they get complacent thinking they do understand it. But when it gets harder, you're all going to be in, you know, in the same position. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting for him to, to say. But my personal experience with it as well was I remember the labs, right? And every single week, every single week in the lab, I was basically, for most of those weeks, I was getting 40%. You know, I would ask you and E123 for help when I can, but then I, I, I basically stopped. I didn't want it to seem like I was begging, you know, to, for help and stuff. So I said to myself, I got to take matters into my own hands. I can't be getting 40%. This is just terrible. I didn't come here for this. So I remember going, I remember going to um, Blackboard and checking our module resource and seeing that, you know, there's this book called um, Objects First with Blue Jay. And that was basically the book we were using for the module. So I decided to go get that book in the library, which is something I normally don't do. And I remember I read that book as soon as I got it, like all the way to like like 3, 4 a.m. to prepare for like quiz we had the next day. And then I remember I basically read like most of the book, basically. And then I remember when I did that test in that lab, I got 80 percent. 
And ever since then, I never got, I never got 40 again, basically. My, my lab scores just kept on increasing. And I realized I was starting to improve my, um, my understanding of Java. And what was it that I basically particularly did was that I decided to, you know, come up with a more structural way of learning. And I'm, I'm a visual like you, so I had to come up with a few plans. And one of the few things I did was, you know, apart from getting a book, I started to code 30 minutes per day in order for the things I was learning the previous day to stick in, basically. And basically, that really helped. And another thing I started doing was basically um, using other resources, such as YouTube. YouTube was a key resource I used, and that really basically helped me. And it basically improved my understanding of Java, to be honest. So if you were to now teach Java, because like for yeah. me, you asked if I, if I was to relearn it. Well, I think you, you grasped it already. You probably don't. So not that I hate it. I'm looking to go back into a programming language, but yeah, I might have to do some revision on Java first. But if you were yeah. to teach Java to someone who was coming in, you know, what would be the, the steps? And I guess I would lead that lead straight into our next question of giving tips for people. Yeah. Well, how would you Absolutely. go about it? If, if you, Man, if you were that lecturer in, in front of those students after you ask them to raise their hand, how would you go about it? Damn, you caught me by surprise. That's <laughs> a good one. Um, what would I do? First thing I would do is basically ensure that, you know, I teach the foundations. And so, for example, with the example of a for loop or the if statement, what I would then do after is basically go into a board or go into a clips or a text editor and give them a real example as to how I would basically use this if statement in a real life scenario. So if let me give you an example. I've told him what if statements is, that it's a, it's a conditional statements and it's what computers use to make decisions. And then after that, I'll probably go to my text editor and say, okay, this is, um, I'm going to write an if statement for my shopping list. So if I have, if there's eggs at the shop, um, add it to my basket. If there's milk at the shop, add it to my box basket. If there's bread at the shop, add it to my basket. Else, if none of these things are at the shop, then go home. And then after that, in the end of the program, I would get uh, the program to basically print out all of the contents of the sh things that were in the shopping bag, basically, that were in the shop. As you can see, what I've done here is that I've, I've shown them uh, basically what an if statement is, and then I've given them the practicals. I've shown them how it could be used in real life. And I know this stuff takes time, but in order to be a good teacher, one thing I've realized is you have to have the patience and the, the energy to literally push this content out to the person, to the people you're teaching or the students you're teaching. And I feel like most lecturers don't want to do this because they probably of you know, repeating the same thing they've said six times a day or whatsoever. But I feel like if you do put the energy into it, we'll get the concept. So basically, give examples and practicalize it. And then the final thing I will do, because how do you prove that someone understands something? What I would then do next is ask them to ask each other partners or whoever I'm, 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 I'm teaching, I would say, now I'll give them an example. Now, rather than the shopping list, I want you to create an if statement that allows me to decide. Yeah, I want you to do an if statement that allows me to grade an exam, basically. Do an if statement that does that. So, for example, if a student gets more than uh, 40%, then this is this grade. If they get higher than 50, it's this grade. And then I would ask them to do something like that. So, again, now it's three steps. So, what I've done here is given them an example of what an if statement is. I've then given them a, a, a real example of how it could be used in real life. 
And now I'm putting the ball in the student's court by telling them to do it. Mm. By them doing it, they will reinforce everything I've said. And if they get it right, then they've learned something. If they get it wrong, they still learn something because it means that they can ask a question. And basically, that's ex- essentially what I'll do. Okay. Yeah, that, <laughs> that makes sense. Was there anything there you, you would make changes to? In, in terms of the, the manner in which you're going about it, no. No. Okay, cool. Because that's, that's what they didn't do with us. Even, even mm. in the lab classes, it wasn't like... It was just like writing. I felt like, for example, for loops or something I struggled with, right? Yeah. Because I didn't know what the I and the I++. plus plus. I was like, you need to make it make sense to me. Don't just mm. tell me for loops is for I plus I, I bigger than plus. And I'm like, oh, wait, so which which is which? Who is like, what is the I? What is the extra plus? When do I put mm. the extra plus? Mm. And then you go to the lab. You're like, okay, now write it and make it work for this. And you're thinking, uh, I still don't get it. Mm. you know and that that patient thing you mentioned is, is definitely not there yeah absolutely absolutely i mean then again i spoke to someone about this and they said well you know we only have an hour for these lectures how much do you want us to fit in and i feel like yeah it's not about the lectures we have labs as well maybe you should put that energy into the three hour lab you know but yeah um essentially that is really what i'll do and i use this method on myself to be honest um i heard a quote from you know a great scientist Feynman. he says um how do you know if you really understand the topic? The best way to, to know if you understand the topic or if someone else understands the topic is how simple they can explain the topic. Oh. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? So what that does is you're, by you explaining what you've just learned to someone else or doing it, you've basically shown your understanding. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So yeah, that's definitely something um, I would do. But in regards to tips, what tips would you um, give to someone who's currently frustrated like we were, who's going to, you know, be going to uni soon to learn Java or is currently learning Java and is struggling or any other programming language like JavaScript? What tips would you provide, Brandon? I I think one is um, either find a different method or be consistent in the method you're using. So it's possible that you have a method you're using, but you're not consistent. Mm-hmm. Learning, learning programming is like learning uh, a musical instrument. Once you learn the foundation, the basics, you're thinking, ah, oh, okay, I, I got this. If it, even if it's drums or guitar mm-hmm. or piano, you're thinking, oh, I understand the C chords, da 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 da. And the way you get good at something is you learn the foundation and you gain the experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of time we learn the foundation and then we want to apply the knowledge like we have 10 years experience to do things. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you learn that foundation you just have to be consistent and keep doing it so but do it in a way that you know you can actually visually see that you're learning and growing there's a lady i was speaking to and they were like saying practice make perfect yeah and she was like no she was like good and correct practice makes perfect because you can be practicing yeah but if you're not practicing the right thing Mm. you are not going to be perfect so if you're hitting a forearm in tennis, but someone taught you the forearm with a little back, with a little spin on it, it's not really a forearm. So when you want to put power on it, it's never going to be correct because that's not, you know, it was forearm, but it's not a good practice. So if you're mm. learning programming, if you're learning Java in particular, once you learn that foundation, it's about doing a correct practice with it. And the keyword is practice. So not just reading the theory. Fantastic. But like while well, 2.0 said, he would try to apply it in different scenarios and situations. So from shopping list to music, maybe you say, okay, I have a list of music. Um, you know, so I'll create an object called music and then I'll, you know, create like 10 
categories and outsert my if statement. So because mm. you now have to think of how you are going to bring that to life, mm. you're practicing it, and you're trying to create something in your mind and bring it to life. Then just you do one exercise, you're like, oh, okay, I got it. You leave, and then there tomorrow, okay, now do it in this scenario, and you're like, you don't know how to do it because, well, you've not really practiced it. Absolutely. Or practice it correct. And if you're still learning the foundation and you're struggling, yeah. it's a case of slowing it down and just take your time. Because I think that was my thing in uni. I was, I was in a hurry, right? Yeah. I, was like, I need to get it done. I need to get it done. Mm. And it just became frustrating. So you take your time and try to learn it in a different way. Re Relearn it or mm. learn it in a new manner than just trying to, you know, cram it into your head and, you know, so... Because some people can see can see a formula and apply it for life, yeah, like to everything. I don't know how they to see the form, formula applied first. Yeah. I will not even remember the formula to be honest. Yeah, until I I won't remember the formula. It's like at work and they're like, oh, when I was working, they're like, did you uh, what did you use for this? And I'm thinking, huh? What? Mm, mm. I was like, I just wanted it to do this, and I did this. They're like, yeah, so. You know, like, and they're trying to speak terminologies, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know how to explain it yeah. to you. Like, but then I have to also learn because of what you have to learn. Okay, relational database, and uh, if we're creating cubes, and I'm just like, okay, for me, the way I know the average map understand it is, you see this cube, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, how you have your row and your headers. Just imagine we have one more to it. Yeah. And that's how you have a cube, the three lines. So, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Well, if someone tells me a cube is this, 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 and a schema, I'm just like, ah, oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you, but maybe another time. Yeah. So, yeah, just relearn in a way that you will understand. No, that's some real practical advice you've given because I remember reading an article um, that was like, you know, how to understand things, how smart people understand things. And I remember, I remember the person who wrote that article you know, reciting how Elon Musk learns new things. And it's quite similar to what you said. The way Elon sees things is sort of like, um, or learns new things, I should say, is sort of like, obviously it's going to be different to everyone else. But I've also heard Bill Gates say the same thing, which I find ironic. And it's, they see things in terms of like semantics or like a tree, basically. So what they do is once they've learned the foundations of the, of a new topic, they try and do something. They go to the next level by doing something, like maybe doing a challenge that'll take them to the next level. So you learn the foundations and do something that allows you to learn the harder bits. And then once you've learned the harder bit, you do something else that basically, you know, allows you to, to learn the, the more harder bits, basically. And sort of like you've got this, like if you're looking at in terms of a tree, you're starting from like the, the roots and then you're making your way up to one of the branches. And then you're making your way up to the leaf and then you're making your way up to like, you know, where there's lots of leaves, basically. And that's basically how you're growing your knowledge. You're basically like learning the foundations and in each level, you're doing something that makes it hard. That makes it harder. And every time you do that, you're basically reinforcing your knowledge. So yeah, I definitely um, understand where you're coming from. That makes sense. In terms of my tips, tips I would provide, I would say code every day for at least 30 minutes. Like I said, this really helped to me because the consistency will help you retain your knowledge. I mean, if you can, you could put an hour into it, of course, but Try and do it in bite size until you fully um, grasp the concepts and then you could slowly increase your time. You know, all these things are gradual. As long as you're making minute steps per day, it's going to be great. You know, 1% of something every day is going to turn into 365% eventually at the end of the year. 
But imagine you put 0%, you get 0% back, you know? So think of it like that. Code every day for at least 30 minutes. For those of us who work and want to learn to program, yeah, 30 minutes is a good time. For those of us who have the time, yeah, one hour is a good time, you know? But just make sure you do it every day consistently. And then after that, one thing I would say is, set yourself a code challenge basically and what this means is that if i've just learned like the example i gave if i've just learned an if statement or for loop what am i going to do now i'm then going to go challenge myself and look for code challenges online just related to if statements or just related to to uh for loops and once i've like smashed at least you know let's say 10 of these questions and, and i'm getting all of them right guess what that means that means that i know what i'm doing and that means i understand this topic so that's another thing I would, I would say. Every time you learn a subpart, such as if statements, for loops, objects, classes, types, in each of these parts, I will give myself a coding challenge. And the next tip I will provide is quite similar to the um, coding challenge, is to have a goal. Hasn't anyone realized in life that when we do set goals for things, we tend to basically achieve that thing because we've set a goal. If we didn't set a goal, we're basically just wondering. And so, for example... My example was when I was in first year in university, I really wanted to get first class. So that meant that I had to understand Java, you know, in whichever way. It meant that basically I had to understand this thing. And that was my goal. And that's what pushed me to do it, basically. When I got to final year, I decided to pick my own project, basically, to, uh, to basically do for final year. I didn't want to choose one of the lecturers once because I knew I wouldn't be motivated. So I picked one of mine. But picking mine required me to learn a new language. But guess why I loved it? Because my goal was to build that product. So by building, having a goal to build something, I was motivated to learn a language. So what would an example goal look like if you guys are learning Java? Maybe you could say, well, by the end of this, uh, um, by, by the end of me learning Java, I want to be able to build a, um, a simulator that simulates a real world environment, or I want to be able to build a, a, a food plant system, or I want to be able to build a, a web application. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So always have a goal that motivates you to, to basically stick it through. And yeah, I, like I said, use various resources. Don't rely on one. You know, we all, we're all different types of learners and each resource will add to your knowledge in different ways and reaffirm your knowledge. So for example, books, YouTube and online courses. And lastly, I would say this one is so important. And this is where I was coming back to when Brandon said that, you know, he went to one of his, um, one of his peers tutored him. Join a community. And even if you can't join one online because you want it face to face, so like Brandon said, then find someone else who's also learning that language or Java and learn it together. Guess why this is great? Number one, you guys get to learn it together. So when you're stuck, you guys can help each other, basically. And also, it's a motivation because you guys eventually, you know, can help each other not only, but you can also progress together. Do you see what I'm saying? It's always much fun, like, when you go to the gym with your friend. You know, you guys have a laugh. Or do all these different things that makes it more fun. The same thing with learning. Once you have uh, an accomplice that's learning with you, you know, it becomes more fun and encouraging and motivating, and you're more likely to stick that thing on to the end. So again, join a community. If it's not an online community, then find someone face-to-face -face that you could, um, you know, do it. And you guys are probably thinking, wait, how can I find someone face-to-face -to, -face to, to learn Java with? Well, there are meetups. Go to meetup.com, you know, and you'd, you'd find many meetups that exist in whichever location you're from. Me, in my case, London. Find Java meetups in London and meet someone else who's learning Java. And I'm, I'm sure you'll find uh, tons of beginners. So hopefully 
those um, tips have helped. Was there anything else you wanted to add in terms of tips, Brandon? Actually, you, as you mentioned, that community part, that's very key. Even if it's an online community as well, just just find a group of people that you can join that, you know, because they will also hold you accountable, you know, to some extent. So I, that part is, is very key. Absolutely. And, you know, another example of online communities, Free Code Camp, they have a great online community that you could check out if you're learning something. And also, the one that saved our degrees, Stack Overflow. If you ever have any issues with programming, make use of Stack Overflow, man. Yeah, make sure you check out all these communities that exist online and in the real world. And essentially, all of that we really wanted to bring about in this podcast by giving you our experiences is that, yes, programming is hard. We're not going to lie and say it's easy, you know, we're nerds and all that stuff. No, you know, it is hard, but it's not impossible to crack. It's not impossible to do whatever you want to do, or it's not impossible to become a programmer or software engineer or data scientist or or back-end developer whatever your your target is it's not difficult like with everything else just put work perseverance and faith in in everything you're doing and consistency you know consistency is very important i'll be honest with you myself none of us here are calling ourselves you know java experts no you know um i, I myself if i speak for myself i wouldn't call myself a java expert i've understood the foundations to a good level now and now I feel like, you know, it's really helped me understand how other object-oriented programming languages work, which has helped to buy. I still haven't hit the pinnacle that I plan to reach with, you know, with Java when I do go back to learn it. So, yeah, hopefully this helps someone who's currently learning Java or program language that they hate, that they find tough. Hopefully it helps, you know, someone that's um, basically learning a new language, even if it's not Java, basically. Yeah, that's it with this section. If you guys have any questions, feel free to tweet any of us. You can tweet us on Twitter, at Quadrifum, DM us on Instagram, send an email to us on our website. Literally, we want to help. We will be happy to help in any way in which we can. So now we're moving on to our Tech in Africa segment. So what are we talking about in our Tech in Africa segment? Brandon, let us know, please. Yeah, so today we are going to be talking about Ethiopia and their and their bid to become, you know, one of the startups um hub in Africa. Um, yes. So they've been recently trying to, you know, flex their interest. They are for a country who is what well, the seventh largest economy in Africa. Yes. And we, we, we know their great history, but they are behind when it comes to startups to the likes of um, South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria. So, you know, South Africa is the South of Africa sorted. Obviously, Kenya, um, West Africa, Nigeria, and Ethiopia can be that for East Africa. And, you know, we in Quadrilla, we love when things are moving forward in tech in, in um, Africa. 100%. But obviously, so they've been facing some challenges recently. And it's funny when, when we did up on this to find out that though they have the seven largest economy, they are still largely a very cash based, um, country. That's to show you how to some extent behind they are in the rate at which tech is moving in Africa because finance was one of the places that was first, you know, sorted. Mm-hmm. So. Um, they've been creating multiple, um, startup ops. They just had, I don't know, actually not they just, they had a, a startup event, which led to a series of, 
um, promises that were made, which we'll go in detail, but then that also led to some actions that were taken. Yeah. But before we do that, to our 2.0, we'll just tell you guys some facts about, you know, the, some of the startups that are coming up, um, the investors and angels that are coming in, yeah. and some of the hubs have been created. Yes. So um, Ethiopia has the potential to have a booming startup tech scene. They have startups such as Ride and Zeride, which are Ride Hill ventures that are gaining traction. And Uber isn't, hasn't actually entered Ethiopia yet. So this is great. Zeride will expand into Liberia in August. They also have early stage ventures such as payment company Yenepay and online food startup Diamat, which is a uh, pretty cool as well. In terms of hubs and accelerators, Ethiopia have a few. They have accelerators and hubs such as Gebea and Blue Moon, an ag tech incubator and seed fund. If we're talking in terms of developer and co-working spaces, they have ICOG Labs, which is an AI and robotics research lab, which we recently spoke about in one of our previous podcasts, where we spoke about Ethiopia's young tech prodigy, Bethlehem Desi, who I think she works there and does some work with them. And if you guys want to check that episode out, it's episode 22. You could check it out in our previous podcast. They also have Ice Addis, which is one of the country's first tech hubs. And in regards to angels and investors, at a recent event that took place last month in Ethiopia called Startup Ethiopia, Addis Ababa Angel Network was announced, which is expected to accept startups this year. There's also an entrepreneurial support group called Ethiopians in Tech, which has links with Silicon Valley. And yeah, you can see that with all these details I've just provided, Ethiopia does have the potential to have a, a booming tech scene or a booming startup environment or a startup hub however there's one major thing that impedes ethiopia from reaching this goal and that's internet connectivity can you tell us more about this brandon yes during a lot of the panel session um, at the startup event it became apparent that a lot of people were complaining about you know the connectivity issues and questions were raised um i was forget what you call them the governor is it what, what do you call them like the the government person, officials person, yeah the government officials for ict and engineering happened to be there which i think is cool that you know he's yeah he's in, and from what how he was answering the questions he seemed like he was genuinely wanting to be involved and wanted to make changes and they did say that they were going to work better on the connectivity issues as well with the wi-fi um and mob, mobile data and ip address issues and one of the reasons they're having this issue is because there's one company which is being run by the government that actually is, a, if not the only one that provides, you know, the internet uh, connectivity in yeah. Ethiopia. And being that it's only one and it's controlled by the government, you know, they can basically do what they want with it. So it's not like, you know, in the UK where you have Virgin, BT. I don't think the government really controls no I, don't, no, I don't think so. No. You know, and your no. connection. No. So that's the big issue. So during the event, the um, official for ICT and engineering did say that they were going to do better to provide internet and they were going to do better to improve the connectivity, you know, make it more accessible to give people more opportunity to, to, to do what they are doing in the tech scene. Only four days later, and welcome to Africa. For the internet to go off for close to two, well, fully two days, almost, you know, a whole three days. I think it was on like from the 11th to the 14th. And questions were asked to that government official 
he he couldn't give a response as to why. Then the, the government came out and said there was a exam. allegedly 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 there were exams taking place and they had to switch off data for people not to cheat. Basically. Well, students, I guess. Yeah, students. So there was a national, like a, it was exam period in Ethiopia. Yeah. So the data had to be switched off. Um, internet had to be switched off so people don't cheat. Which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you want to cheat, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> except if you're allowed to have phones in yeah. your exam hall, yeah, you know, and not, not to digress, funny story still to do with Africa and phones are technology. Yeah. In Nigeria, they, they took the phones of students during an exam yeah. and burnt the phones. Burnt it? Burnt no, the phone. No, no, no way. <laughs> they burnt their phones. Why? They destroyed the phone. No, that's nuts. So that people don't cheat. What? But that's, that's, that's for another day. But this government decided we would just switch off the internet instead of Taking your phone phones away, uh, so yeah, that that has been the we'll say the, the major stumbling block because as yeah. well 2.0 right, with everything that they're doing, even like some of the financial tech apps coming up, um, that's even helping farmers to get payments, um, you know the the apps for the ride, mm-hmm. seeing Uber, and, and I think that's beautiful that Uber is not there, two companies already like having a stronghold in that industry before Uber yes. comes in. And try to monetize it, so it's it's good that that's happening. Absolutely. To see that, you know, after those promises were made, <laughs> and and I feel like this is how you know that maybe the government is threatened. Yeah. For that type of gathering to take place, for it to be successful, and the govern, you know, governor, whoever is in charge of ICT and engineering, to say, okay, we will do this, and then someone else will just switch it off. Yeah. It, it it's heartbreaking. Absolutely, same here. To be honest, I think, to, in my opinion, I think if it's a known problem in Ethiopia, then I guess the I, I wouldn't even say it makes sense for the government to do that. I think it's a flimsy excuse, and the reason why I'm, you know, I think it's wrong for them to do this is because think about the businesses and startups, local businesses and startups who lost the money during this, um, you know, lack of internet connection. Do you know how much money they would lose with not having their users being able to access their products? It's just crazy. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think this is the disadvantage, number one, of maybe having one mobile and IP um, state-owned telecommunications company. And number two, and this is the disadvantage of the government controlling and, and owning things because then it means they could be pulling crazy stunts such as this. You know, people lose money when stuff like this happens. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So I don't, I think this is um, what they did there is a, is a flimsy excuse. I don't think what they said about the national exams is true. I just feel like they're basically exercising their power and then showing people that, look, we own this stuff. You know, this stuff is us. Mm. I think there's a recurring pattern here where we've always said for Africa to try, for Africa to try, it's down to the government. It's down to the government. Absolutely. Is, is there time going to come where we have to take that? Because the thing about the, the tech scene, even, even here, I know when we're studying computer science, they were like, oh, um, you don't have to go to Oxford or Wolverhampton. Uh, you know, if you can go to Wolverhampton and Oxford, if you get a computer science degree, it's still a very young degree mm. compared to the likes of law or doctors where you have to go to like a prestigious uni to stand out, right? Yeah. And because it's still very young, do you think a time will come we can take the power away from the government? Absolutely. To say, you know what, 
and that's why it's so it's so tricky right it's the yeah. government right yes. so we cannot just bomb, bombard india because if if someone comes over and sort of a uh a, a company to provide let's just say free internet boom the, the government can shut it down because it's the government so at what point do we start saying we want this power back into our hands yeah i mean you know i was actually going to speak about this uh later on to be honest and you know, one thing I was going to say is that we have already taken the power. I mean, by starting a startup and it flourishing, you know, and getting uh, investments from maybe investors in your country or, you know, foreign investments, you've already taken that power away from the government. Do you see what I'm saying? Not to say, you know, if the government doesn't give them an investment, they shouldn't take it. I'm just saying that by starting a startup and by doing these things, by starting tech hubs and incubators and accelerators, this has already taken power into our own hands. And what does this mean? This means more people should do this. Do you see what I'm saying? Which is why you see later on what what I would suggest should be done. But in regards to your thoughts around this whole internet connectivity issue, what are your thoughts? Um, Like I said, one, heartbreaking. Because when, when you think about the moment I saw Ethiopia, I just went, oh, the first thought is the prestigious history of Ethiopia, right? Mm. And what they meant for Africa. Yeah. You know, um, whereby even before, and I don't want to seem like that black person that always refers back to <laughs> slavery <laughs> and it's colonization. Cool. Yeah. But unfortunately, it's, it's a sad truth that even before the, the, the white men came, yeah. So other African countries that were not doing well or striving, Ethiopia was already there, mm. right? From the wealth, their their vision, their foresight, their infrastructure at that time. That you know, white people always love Jesus Christ. I'm not using politically correct terms here, but Caucasian always like. Give. Why would you change it to that? The same America, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we wouldn't have to have a conversation about this whole difference between America and British. But I don't want to digress, but did you see the, the whole thing about them saying our pain is not the same as theirs, that we are whitewashed, we, we've, we're, we're, we're falling in love with the colonizers and the white nah, man. That, I didn't see this. Oh, that we don't feel the same pain like they do. No, nah, I didn't see this, but I do know that's something Americans always say because I remember when... um. What's his name? Samuel Jackson said that thing about Daniel Kaluuya when he got the role for Get Out. Yeah. He was saying, like, what does he know about racism in UK? And Daniel's like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> like, being a, <laughs> being a black guy anywhere is, you know, of course you'd, you'd experience uh, some type of racism. But yeah, oh, that's another yeah. conversation not, for another day. Yeah, not, not to digress. So to see where they were and seeing them coming back, it's like, oh, this is going to be great because they are going to go back to that status that they were yeah. in, in, in history. Yeah. And once I started reading, I, I got excited. I was like, okay, cool. Seven largest economy. That's good. And then you started reading like the switch of the internet. You're thinking, wait, what, <laughs> wait, how, how did we go from, you know, fintech, uh, the apps, the startup, like you mentioned earlier about the, the genius we spoke about working in robotics to the government switched off. The internet. And like I said earlier, for me, it was just heartbreaking. I don't really mm. think there was anything else I took away because everything else is moving forward. Absolutely. And then to have this stumbling block when you have investors coming in from, from different countries. Yeah. Because I think that the thing about, and we spoke about community elder, right? Mm -hmm. I think as much as African countries are very competitive with each other. Yeah. They have this thing whereby 
they have this thing whereby they still want to see each other do well and yeah. grow. And I feel like that's something that's happening in the tech scene, in the startup scene a lot, where yeah. people have moved from Nigeria to Kenya to join a startup, vice versa. People going to live in South Africa, you know, just to pursue like the startup. Or And even when we spoke about, you know, how many 1 billion, <laughs> how many companies turn around, you know, a uh, billion dollars in Africa. And you, you see that growth and just if some people in power decide, we want it to be done our way. Exactly. Or it cannot be done any other way. You know, it's, mm. it's just sad. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my thoughts on this is that this is just another example of the government in Africa not allowing their country to reach its full potential. They need to fix this issue so that the startups can thrive. Here are a few ways in which I think they could fix the issue, basically. They could introduce more telecoms companies so that it's not just the one they have now, and so that it provides more options, number one. Number two, they could basically do partnerships with big tech companies like Google and Facebook, just like uh, what you call it Nigeria did with um, Google when they introduced free Wi-Fi to Lagos. Check out episode 18 of our podcast. We spoke about this. It's a very interesting, interesting topic. So they could do these things. Yes, of course, I'm not a big fan of always getting foreign help, but I think, look, if it moves us closer to a big goal, you know, why not? And if the terms are right, you know, why not? Also, I feel like when they do fix the issue, the cost of the internet is important because it has to be easily affordable and accessible by everyone. You don't want to make it too expensive so that only certain people or companies can uh, access it. You still want that kid who is eight-year-old to be able to go on YouTube and, you know, learn how to code. And also, Connectivity seems to be a common issue in Africa. Like, don't you think? First, Nigeria has many telecommunications providers, but data is too expensive for many people. Yeah. And Ethiopia doesn't have many, and the connectivity is poor. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Connectivity seems to be a, an issue in, in countries in Africa. So I think that all leaders in Africa need to come together in their next tech summit and make internet connectivity a priority. Oh. Because... Without this, startups and companies cannot thrive, and neither can their economies. Do you see what I'm trying to say? And even similarly, I also think that if the government decides to do nothing about this, we should get all our tech heads in South Africa, in, in uh, what do you call it, in Nigeria, in Kenya, that are you know places where they're doing really good. Get all these tech leaders together and see how they can help each other out. You know, if one thing is lacking in another person's country, hey, bro, hey, guys, you know, sorry, not just bro, of course, there's going to be male and females who are starting startup. But um, yeah, they could be like, hey, guys, this is how we basically solved our issue. Do you see what I'm trying to say? In that way, they, yeah. they're making use of each other's resources, basically, and knowledge. And I think that's what needs to be done, which is why when I saw that they have um, a startup, they have a group, an, an entrepreneur group in uh, Ethiopia that basically has links with Silicon Valley, with the Ethiopians in Silicon Valley. That is fantastic. Because mm. what, what that does is brings Silicon Valley's resources, such as investors, uh, incubators, support, and brings it and puts eyes on Ethiopia. Africa needs to do the same thing by supporting each other. And I think once we can do this, if the government doesn't want to help us, then, you know, I think we're, we're onto something here. Just got to help each other. And I know it's tough because, of course, each respective country is building their own stuff. They're, they're all trying to make, build their, their, their startup hub. So they're not going to have time. But I think for us to move together or go farther, we've got to help each other out. 
you know. So um, yeah, I think that's what I would say in regards to this, to be honest. Yeah, and what you mentioned about because that that's something we, we've seen happen where people are building community um, networks and connections with people in Silicon Valley, where we've had people like the lady from Nigeria who yes. runs that um, data company. Funke. Yeah, Funke, having worked in Europe and done all those things and brought back those resources and, and knowledge, mm. you know. And I mean, I, I guess it, it's expensive and maybe I might be naive, maybe I don't know about it. What stops, you know, a couple of, well, more than a couple of people coming together, launching a satellite in the sky and saying, we will give, you know, internet to so so and so people you know and and i guess it becomes complicated to have multiple countries and multiple startups involved yeah you know but i, I feel like there, there are things that we could do but again you know you have to in between the lines like it's either stay in between the lines or you don't know who is who and what what's happening where but True. yeah we I, I do hope it, to some extent it gets sorted sooner rather than than later and, and sometimes i think like all these people that are making the billions what are you doing <laughs> with your money and who knows maybe maybe when i'm in that position i might not do it but when when i'm sitting here and i don't know if like i always say like for me i don't want to be my i, I just want to be comfortable right i want to be able yeah. to provide for my family get everything i want and have a bit extra mm. so if my kid says we want to go on holiday is not i will not be like haha okay my wife should we budget and do over you know do <laughs> yeah. overtime no but then when I start thinking of why I want to be more than that in terms of wealth mm. and finances, it's so that maybe I can walk into my granddad's village where he was king and say, okay, you know what? We'll build a solar plant here yeah. and we'll provide electricity for this village. Yeah. And we would pay the, the teachers in the school. So we'll, that way we can hire better teachers, at least to primary school, maybe to primary six. Mm. You don't have to pay school fees. And then I can get all the other people from that village that's traveled abroad, create mm. a fund, you know, like a trust fund and say, we'll send certain students from that school to secondary school and uni. Like what's stopping people from, from, from the, when I think about making money, that's what I'm, that's, <laughs> I, I don't understand. What are you doing with your, yeah. with your, with your 30 billion, you know, 30 billion for my account? What, what are you doing with the 30 billion? It's funny because I'm laughing because what you said is what some, I'm laughing at what a guy in a YouTube comment said. He said exact same thing that you just said. He said, instead, these guys are basically buying, um, you know, figuring out how we can go to space. They're buying your rockets and all that stuff. <laughs> and, you know, you know, uh, what do you call it? Focusing on things that don't really matter. And, you know, um, they could be looking at poverty in Africa. And there is some truth to that. But at the same time, I feel like you've got some billionaires who basically use that money to advance human race and figure out, okay, where's the future going? What are we going to do with this in terms of the future? And then I guess you've got some who maybe just, you know, use their billion to do something else and, you know, um, help another economy or, you know, community. So it depends on the type of uh, billionaire they are. Yeah, but yeah. I'll be honest with you, as much as, you know, you said wealthy, yes, I want to be wealthy. But at the same time, as we said in one of our previous podcasts as to what does success mean to us, this is why I want to be a billionaire. This is one of the main reasons, you know, I feel like being a billionaire allows you to do a billion things. And what I, what I mean by that is a billion big things. And what I mean by that is basically you could sponsor huge projects such as, you know, the one, like, for example, the Wi-Fi or, you know, maybe, you know, build your, you know, uh, something crazy. Basically, you could do huge things, basically, that isn't on the small scale. And I think that's why, you know, I want to be a billionaire. And I feel like it gives you the opportunity to, you know, solve problems like this, as I've said previously, and other things that can literally help not just the whole village, but a whole country.
Do you see what I'm trying to say? So, um, yeah, I definitely feel what you're saying. But at the same time, I guess it's their money. You know, um, these guys do what they want to do with it. But one person I would say that's totally changed for me and that, that has totally inspired me and I've always been inspired by is what Bill Gates does with his money. You know, he started the Bill and Melinda Foundation with his wife. And, you know, the stuff they were doing with Africa by almost eradicating polio in Africa. That's amazing. And now he's working with waste and figuring out how you could use, turn waste into drinkable water. He's doing cool stuff like that. And he's also investing in things that are making the future better. And I feel like that's an example of what I want to do with my billions, basically. And I'm saying like I have a billion, but you know, you got to put things out there into the world. No, God willing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I know the, the billionaires I was referring to were, were actually those in Africa. I was never, when you, ah. when you started, I was even thinking about like, uh, what's his name? Like Bill Gates or thing. I was actually thinking about just people in, because we know they have, mm. there's money in Africa. We, we, 100%. there is, there is money in Africa. But like you said, you know, everyone, everyone to their own. We, we know why would we do what we do, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but also, no, go. So what are you going to say? No, one thing I was going to say is because some people might misconstrue this. I'm not saying we need a, you need a billion, you need to be a billionaire to make an impact. No. You, oh, could, yeah. you don't necessarily don't need any money to, to do whatever you want to do to make your community better. All you have to do is be willing, necessarily. So, for example, I'm just going to give you a quick story of a girl I heard about who she was teaching um, programming to girls in, in the slums. And she literally doesn't even have much programming experience, but she decided to use the, the knowledge she's gained to teach other girls and thus receive more funding from, you know, backers in, in, in Africa and from Bill Gates. So I'm saying what she did there, she didn't need a billion. She just used her knowledge that she gained in programming and expanded that in her community. That's another way you can make, um, you know, an impact, to be honest. You don't need a billion to make an impact. But what we are saying is that we want to be billionaires. So, yeah, that's, I just wanted to clarify that. All right. Like you said, uh, yeah. uh, you can do a billion big things. Yeah, exactly. By, by being, being a, a billionaire. Exactly. Yeah, yeah but hopefully it, it, it does get better. Cause, yeah, it will. Uh, like my biggest fear right now, Mm. is not maximizing my potentials. <laughs> that scares me every day. So, like, when I think... Hey, sorry, say that again, please. Your biggest fear is what? My biggest fear right now, it's not maximizing my potentials, my skills Jeez. and talent. Because I, I, keep, I sit down every day and I'm like, okay, what did we do today? Oh, mm. we could have done more. We didn't do enough. Mm. Okay, you could have done this better. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And there's sometimes I just sit back and think, well, what happens if I actually never get to that place that I know I can be like, okay, I did my best and this is mm. where it got me to. Then mm. I'll have to keep saying, I could have, I should have, I would have, yeah. you know. And then you become that guy who is basically, you, you probably had that knowledge of the most talent is in, is in the grave, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, people in the, yeah, that they say the most talent is, is in the graveyard. <laughs> Well, you become a yeah, so they do like if you want to see the, the richest man in the world, the person with the most potential, the most talented, they're all in the grave, they just never maximized it Jeez. or used it. When I think about it, I start thinking you literally become that person but alive. 
Yeah. You get because you're either settled, you know. Um, I, I feel like I'm digressive, but just to quickly share, like, does me leaving my job and then saying, okay, progression, if I was to take something next, it has to be this, has to be something I want that isn't going to compromise everything else I'm doing. Mm. And then recently, I was looking at just roles, and my friend mm. was like, you need the money, just apply. I was like, I can't apply for this because one, then what was the point of leaving my job? Mm. Like, but you need the money. I was like, it's, it's, it's spent the same for even a lesser role. Mm. Like, why, why would I settle? Right. Why would yeah. I settle? You know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just, that's, that's the fear right now. And hopefully we will get to a place whereby we maximize it and that allows us to, to help others. So. 100%. I mean, we will. I mean, I feel like being humble, I feel like we are already doing that, you know, just because we don't have the, the huge finances, we want to do it. Like, for example, this podcast is one of the reasons we did it was because hopefully there's a there's someone out there who's motivated to do some of the things we're speaking about in terms of going to help Africa or in terms of learning a new programming language so that they could push themselves to build or start that company they wanted to start. So in a way, we are providing value and helping people it's just that we have tons and billions of other ways we also plan on doing that and i feel like making this um small steps now is good you know it's a marathon and not a sprint and also the same fear you have of not maximizing your your potential is that same one i always have as well to be honest and i feel like those are questions we should be asking ourselves every day and it sounds weird but that question allows you to reinforce what you should be doing do you see what I'm trying to say? So yeah, definitely. I can definitely relate with what you're saying. And we're already making those minute steps. This podcast in itself, I feel like it is providing value, you know? So um, yeah, we'll definitely get there, man. So thank you everyone once again for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And also one thing I'd like to say is in our next few podcast episodes, we want to try something different. So we're going to be having some guests in, in which we feel will provide value to um, people in uh, technology and yeah, mainly technology. So listen out for that. Also, if any of you guys are out there that wants to build a mobile app or website, feel free to let us know. Or even if you do want consultation for um, a product you currently have or your company or your startup, let us know. We all have various skills within our team, various skill sets. And some of us already currently provide consultations to startups. So yeah, feel free. And yeah, that's it for today's episode. And catch you in the next one. Peace. Thank you, guys. Take care. <laughs> Sleep on team on you. Who I be? Who I be? What make I no go find my you? I not to send anybody. Me at the house, you come on, Jacob. Make you house, you might love.